As a pastor, I'm constantly concerned about how to create connections beyond just the weekend services. And one of the valuable tools that we have found for achieving this at our church is our app powered by Subsplash. It's one thing to have an app. It's another thing to have an app that has the ability to allow your community to access messages, resources, and even give. And Subsplash created that for us. It's become our go-to platform for connecting with our congregation in ways we never could have before. Subsplash is so much more than just a platform or even just an app. It brings people together, empowers giving, and transforms lives. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to visit their website at subsplash.com. That's S-U-B-S-P-L-A-S-H.com. Subsplash.com. Following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. Join us each week as we work to make faith simple. This is Simple Faith. Everybody says things are different post-COVID. So how can you define success when the job market has changed, the metrics have changed, our dashboards have changed? What does success look like post-COVID? Today, we get to find out the answer to that. You know, following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's not complicated. And each week, we try to make faith a bit more simple. This is Simple Faith. I'm your host, Rusty George. And today, we get to talk to one of my favorite guests. And I think he's been on the show more than anybody else, a guy by the name of Brian Dodd. Brian spent years working for John Maxwell, now works for Maxwell's company, Enjoy Leadership. And he also does so much work to help leaders in his very popular blog that comes out once a day. It's an incredible honor to have Brian Dodd back with us. He's got a brand new book out trying to help us break down how to define success in this ever-changing post-pandemic world. I want to thank Subsplash for sponsoring our conversation today. We have much more information about them as shared on this podcast so you can hear more about what it is that they are doing And today we get a chance to hear from Brian Dodd once again. Here we go. Brian Dodd, repeat guest on the show. We got to start sending you a paycheck. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast again. Hey, I am always glad to to come back and spend some time with you and your audience. And no need to put me on the payroll. I'll, I'll for you, Rusty. I'll do it for free. So, <laughs> well, that's what we all get paid for this. So I exactly. was going to double it for you, but uh, hey, buddy, uh, it is uh, always fun to talk to you. And we can talk movies. We can talk sports. I want to talk about travel because I read a blog you did years ago about travel hacks, which I used. Almost all of them, they're brilliant. I want to get into that in just a minute. But you just had a new book come out. Uh, you've written this book called Mighty, which is seven skills you need to move from pandemic to progress. Uh, I know that you write almost daily with a blog, but where'd this book come from? Is it a collection of blogs, and what was the purpose behind it? Yeah, it's kind of a a number of moving parts kind of coming together. Uh, So the book before this was 2021, The Year in Leadership. And that was really the book I always wanted to write. You know, it was my third book, but it, it was just a chronological collection of my best articles for the year of 2021. So by the way, if your listeners haven't got that book yet, don't let the word 2021 scare you. They're all relevant stories. Leadership is timeless. Every page has principles. 
I definitely get that. But I love that book. But here was the problem from just a sheer commerce perspective. You know, it did bracket the uh, excitement level of the book. Mm-hmm. You know, so if a leader said, well, I'm not interested in 2021, I've moved on or something like that. Yeah. You know, it just kind of it kind of hurt book sales, for lack of a better phrase. So I, I wasn't going to do 2022 the year in leadership. Um, but what I did do is I love that concept of all my best articles for, for a year. Mm-hmm. And so I had a friend of mine named Robert Carnes, who's also an author. And he goes, Brian, I really loved your book 2021, but instead of doing it chronologically, if you'd put it into categories, that'd be great because then I could just read about what I wanted to read about. And I just put that in the back of my mind. And then also I spoke to to a couple different groups. One was one of the business associations here in our community and another was a church. And I did the leadership skills of David's Mighty Men because huh. I just I just love that story. Yeah. And the feedback was phenomenal. And somebody even told me that should be your next book. So you have these these different things happening. So I took the best articles from 2022 and also added other items to it, but then put them in the categories that the outline from the text gave. So when you walk through David's Mighty Men, you know, and we may hit on a couple of the skills, but let's just take the first one, production, okay? That's Joseph Bashabeth. He killed 800 people with a sword, or excuse me, a spear, okay? This is production. This is a high-producing individual, okay? Well, my best articles on production all fell into that category, Okay. And then they were edited and tied together and things like that. And I also really wanted it to be a resource for churches and small groups that discipleship pastors could take their people through it and things of that nature. So at the end of each chapter, there's study questions. So mm-hmm. the book is not really meant to be read alone. You can certainly do that for your own personal growth and leadership enjoyment because the stories are fun and informative and things like that. But uh, but yeah, if you're looking to disciple people or something like that, you can definitely do that at your place of work or something like that. So really, it was about four or five different things that I kind of all brought together in a single book. Mm, I love that idea. Well, you compartmentalize things really well because you're you have so much content out there. Are you writing? Is it a blog a day that you put out or four a week or what's what's your your process look like? Yeah, I generally do about six or seven a week. Okay. Now, a couple of those, you know, I do have some people that have, you know, do paid posts, you know, so they'll, they'll fall in there and also do my Friday top 10 list of 10 posts I read during the week. So in terms of new original content, I'd say you get about four or five posts a week. Okay. And that's all found on Brian Dodd on leadership, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love it because it just gets emailed to me every single day, and it's it's great. So I want to go back to this book because, I mean, obviously, we're all trying to move beyond the pandemic. Here we are in 2023, and it feels like, you know, we're still kind of slugging it out to to get back into rhythm again. And I think we've all had those moments where we feel like, hey, I think, I think it's back. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for me, it was, you know, Easter. 
2022 felt really good. Easter 2023 felt even better. Uh, Maybe, you know, for leaders, it's various, uh, you know, experiences they've had. Maybe they're traveling again or they feel like, you know, sales are back up, whatever it is. What's another one of these, uh, you know, skill sets of moving from uh, pandemic to progress that you point out? Production's one of them. Give us another one. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just go in order of the text. You know, it's funny. So somebody asked me, what's the most important of seven? Well, it's really how you're wired. The seventh is faith. So that's the most important. But the other six, it's just how you're wired. So I'm wired as a producer. So I have a natural bent towards that. But our friend, Mike Lynch, Mm -hmm. I was on his podcast. His was passion, which is this one. Interesting. You know, so I'm going to talk about passion. So that's Eleazar. And, you know, the people listening may remember this story. Um, He fought an army as well. Everybody left him. So it was just him. And at the end of the battle, it says they literally had to pry the sword from his hand. Mm. Okay, that's passion. You know, he left it all on the field. You know, he mm-hmm. he was the guy that you had to pry it from, from his hand. And, you know, there's a lot of great um, definitions of passion, like excitement or zeal or something. Like that. And they're all correct. All of those are correct. If I had to take all of those and wrap them up into a single definition, it's owning the result. Mm. It's got a it's got a little bit of that you know, over my dead body type mentality or not on my watch mentality mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I, you know, to advance the mission and vision of our organization, I, 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 I will do everything within my power to make that a reality, mm. you know, so passion, you know, to move forward in a post pandemic world and to move from pandemic to progress, uh, yes, you 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 have to own the result. Mm. So that that would be another one. What do you say to somebody that would say, "Well, I'm just not that passionate of a person." I mean, I think about Mike Lynch, and that's just you. You just see that from him on anything, whether it's teaching, whether it's leadership, whether it's playing baseball, uh, whatever it is. But some people just feel like, "Well, my temperament doesn't seem to be given towards passion." But you still need to be passionate, right? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, temperament's one thing. Mm-hmm. Passion is another. So if I was talking to somebody and they said that, I'd say, well, we're talking about two different things. You know, we all have different temperaments, but what we're talking about is owning the result. Okay. You know, and, you know, it may be your family. I am passionate about my family and the development of my children. Mm-hmm. Or I'm passionate about my local church or, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about some type of hobby. Okay. Whatever it is, there are different personality styles, but, but passion is owning the result. Hmm. And so, yes, if, if somebody says, well, I'm not passionate about anything. Okay. Now we're talking about a different issue because you're a passionless human being. So we, 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 we've got a whole different that's a that's a different book I haven't written yet for that individual. That might be a medical condition. There. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So we've talked about production. We've talked about passion. Now, you've already tipped your hand that the final one is faith. So they don't all start with the letter P. So you can't preach this, okay, because they'd have to all be alliterated, right? Exactly. So you, you yeah. go off, uh, off script just a bit. Talk about faith a little bit. Because, um, you know, there's two items in this chapter on faith. At first, tell us about your daughter's wedding and how that plays in. 
Yeah, so the reason faith is in there, if you read that passage out of 2 Samuel 23 and, and, and you read David's mighty men, okay, there are two times that it says, and the Lord gave them the victory. And I even point this out in the book. You know, I, I, I train and I equip and I invest and I tell stories and give analogies and give tips. And I do all of that for the first six. Okay. But when we get to the seventh chapter, I do point in there that at the end of the day, you can do all those other six, you know, resilience, teamwork, contentment, courage. You can, you can do all the, all the other ones and you should. Um, and if you don't do them, you won't be as successful as you would be otherwise. But chapter number seven, I point out that ultimately at the end of the day, it's the Lord that gives the victory. Mm. And so one of the victories that I had last year, and you pointed it out, was my, you know, my daughter Anna's wedding. So she's an only child. So Sonia and I were empty nesters for the third time because she goes to college. You know, these kids come back now, Rusty, you know. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, but we, you know, we were hoping this is the final, you know. But yeah, you know, you marry off your only daughter. Father's marrying off their daughters in general. But but yeah, that to say marrying a child off is a faith journey would be an understatement. Mm -hmm. And I remember Rusty the night before the wedding and I couldn't sleep. I think I obviously fell asleep because there was some stress dreams in there. But you know what went through my mind as a dad? And obviously I'm wired for production. So every, you know, you got to check it off the list and accomplish stuff and get, you know, hang trophies on the wall and yet, you know, just how I'm wired. Right. What was going through my mind was all the times I blew it as a dad, mm. you know, and, you know, and you're sitting there and all these things are going through your mind and you're like, man, I wish I, you know, those people that say, uh, I don't have any regrets because they made me the person I am. Well, I'd like to have a, a whole bunch of do-overs. You know? <laughs> no so, kidding. And all the do-overs I wish I could do over was just on a roll mm -hmm. going through my mind. And so I woke up and I, Rusty was the greatest thing. Anna sent me a text and you know, she's obviously nervous the day of the wedding and she sends me a text and she goes, were you nervous the day of the wedding and how'd you handle it? Cause I'm nervous, you know? And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to give her a very basic answer, but that question was not basic. That, that question was like God confirming. Yeah. You, you know, you weren't perfect. That's why you need a savior. Mm. You know, that's, that's why I shed the blood, you know? but you weren't all that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, you did some, you did some things good. And so anyway, yeah, the wedding, mm -hmm. the, the wedding turned out to be just a beautiful thing. And it was a, it was a wonderful day. So, wow. Okay. So I want to talk more about the book, but let me drill down on this, you know, giving your daughter away in marriage. My kids are, <clears throat> are not at that stage. They're at the dating stage right now. And I find myself just really, skeptical of any kid that wants to date my daughter. And I'm thinking, does this guy have what it takes? You know, is he going to amount to anything in life? And all the things that, you know, you fear, how did you know? And maybe it's a, it's a total faith thing, as you said, but 
what was the moment you thought, okay, Anna, I think you, I think you got a good one here. I like this kid. Um, you know, because there's this moment, and your daughter was older, you know, when she decided to get married, so she's, you know, thinking more like an adult, not just a, a teenager. There's this moment of, all right, I got to trust you, but I also like the choice that you made. H- how did you come to that revelation? Yeah, and I think, and I think to to quote, you know, Samuel, and the Lord does give you the victory there. You know, mm. I, I'll never forget the first time I met my son-in-law, and this was actually part of my speech at the reception. My daughter was involved in a fender bender, and so I drove to the scene of the accident. And this guy I had heard about, uh, you know, because she was always skeptical of who to bring to us because we're not we weren't going to like any of them. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. So I'd heard about this guy and we go there and he's already there, you know, and he's kind of comforting her and all that kind of stuff. And and I remember, you know, it was it was on an exit ramp off the interstate. So there was a convenience store there. I got on a you who and a honey bun breakfast from the convenience store and you know that that kind of thing and i remember driving home and you know the first time they ever met um my daughter was a contract singer so she'd go from church to church singing and uh, this guy was at a church she was singing at and he got on her about she needed to have a church home instead of going from church to church. So Anna comes home one night and I said, well, how was church, sweetie? Oh, it was terrible. Okay. All right. Why, why was it terrible? Well, there was this guy and he's told me that I needed to find the church home. Who is he to tell me anything? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know my experience. This is why people are leaving the church. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> so anyway, a week or two later, she's going out with him. So I remember driving home and I was thinking, number one, if this thing goes where it's supposed to go or could go, he'll take care of my daughter spiritually and he'll be there in her time of need and take care of her physically. Mm. And I remember thinking that driving home and you never know where it's going to go, but I kind of had a sense then and God kind of, yeah, now look, does he make enough money? Is he perfect? No, no father's ever going to think their son-in-law is all of that, you know? Yeah. But I keep trying to remind everybody when me and Sonny got married, Rusty, I made $12,000 a year. Mm. Get, get fired up about that, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so yeah, he's a, Jonathan is an incredible son-in-law. Couldn't have asked for anybody better. Uh, he's perfect for my daughter. And, you know, I do try to look at it. I didn't lose a daughter. I gained a son. Yeah. But that long, very long answer to answer your question, I felt a sense of peace driving home from a car accident. Yeah. So that's great. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. So back to chapter on faith. Um, Tell us about some of the common threads you're seeing uh, with churches who are currently growing when it comes to this, this principle of faith. Yeah. So for, for your listeners who may not know, I've, I have a very unique job. Um, daytime job. I work for Enjoy Stewardship, so I help churches raise capital. Okay. So interesting thing about my job is I only talk to churches that are growing 
or desperately want to grow so much they want to free up funds and produce funds to make that happen. Okay. Very interesting job. Um, so that's all I do. So every day when I talk to a pastor, at the end of the conversation, I'll say some permutation of this. You know, depending on what you read, 85 churches or 85 percent of all churches are plateaued or declining. Another 10, 11 percent, if they are growing, aren't growing as fast as their city. So there's really only about four percent that are really, you know, making a significant impact into their city. And I'll tell them, I'll say, look, you're you're either one of the four percent or the 15 percent. So. Obviously, it's the goodness of God, but what are y'all doing there to grow? Hmm. And I'll, I'll ask that to almost every church that I talk to. And I got a real good sense on what on what I think is happening church growth wise in America okay. today. Okay, from that. And Rusty, I take it back to Revelation chapter two. Okay. I know you did this, Church of Ephesus. I know you did this. I know you did this. I know you did this. I know you do this. I know you do this. I only got one thing against you. You lost your first love. Mm. And, you know, and I'll talk to church leaders and they're like, you know, hey, we're putting on the light show and we're doing this big event and we're doing, you know, and we're bringing in, you know, professional this or that. And we, we just built this and, you know, they'll go through all that. Church growth today, Rusty, is about who you are, not what you do. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened is COVID stripped away all non-essentials. You know, the average person that comes to a church now, they're going to go, if somebody starts coughing halfway around the world, I could lose my loved ones. I could lose my career. I could lose my job. I could lose friends as we argue over mask or no mask or social distancing or something like that. Um, the worst thing that people lost other than loved ones, Rusty, is they lost hope. Yeah. You know, so so when they come to church, they they want what's real. And for for pastors and church leaders, this has created a an incredible opportunity because if you just give people Jesus and you give people biblical truth from God's word and you elevate the scriptures and elevate Jesus, that that's what that's what's growing churches today. Does the attractional model still work? Yes and no is what I tell people. The light show and the big event is not going to grow your church anymore, mm -hmm. but they are still attracted to something. But what are they attracted to that? The person standing up on that platform, if I know that they've spent time with God and they're showing up today and they're the real deal and they've got a specific word from God for a specific group of people at a specific time in human history about the specific issues that they're dealing with in their lives, we will line up to hear that person. And the thing, the thing that I, I try to, and look, some people reject it. I was in a meeting yesterday that, frankly, this message got rejected. They're still trying to figure out, well, hey, if we do this with our, you know, out on our lawn and we do this or that, you know, we're thinking that's going to do it. And I'm, I'm like, you know, it's not, it's not what you do so much. And I tell people this, you need to have an 80s message wrapped in 2000s excellence. 
people will still reject a lack of excellence. Okay. I mean, if they're going to come, they want excellence, but the, the gloss in and of itself no longer reaches people in my opinion, but the essence of who a person is. And I tell pastors this, go back to numbers, Moses and the 10 of meeting our good mutual friend, Crawford Loritz. Mm. I'd read the passage, but Crawford taught me this. The pastor during the week goes into his tent of meeting. The spirit of God comes down and hovers over him and they talk as a friend talks to a friend. Meanwhile, everybody knows that Moses is meeting with God. They pitch their tents outside the other tents waiting for God or waiting for Moses to come back and says, here's what God told me about the issues of your life. That is church growth in 2023. Mm. People will come, people will pitch their tents outside your tents. We like to call this Sunday attendance. Mm -hmm. They come, they pitch their tents and they wait for the person on that platform to say, I've spent all week with God and here's the specific message he has for you. Um, I tell pastors, do not wing it. Do not preach something from Rick Warren from the eighties. Don't, you know, unless there's a good reason, don't recycle an old message. Spend your time with God. Get the message from him. Bring it back to the people who have pitched their tent because they can't wait to hear what God's going to say through you. Those are the churches that are growing. So when you say preach an 80s message wrapped in 2000s uh, excellence, yeah, explain that a little bit more. I get the excellence. What's the 80s message got to do with it? Yeah, the 80s message is, and I'll call it, um, technically a, a good phrase would probably be raw, you know. Okay. But it is, this is what the Bible says. Okay. People want to know who God is. Uh, so this is who Jesus is. This is what the Bible says. This is how the Bible says you should live your life. This is what sin is. And this is why sin in your life is so destructive. And this is what repentance means. And, you know, the messages we all grew up under. Okay. You know. Makes total sense. Uh, so, yeah. So kind of, and, and look, you're going to, people are going to deliver that message through their own personality. Mm -hmm. But yes, at the, at the end of a message, they should know that, you know, they need a savior in their life. There's sin in their life, separating them from their savior. And Jesus, Jesus can step in. The Damar, I want to, I've not written on this. Rusty, you're the first person I will share this with. I think the Damar Hamlin cardiac event is how it's described during that football game should be a wake up call for all pastors and church leaders. Because when he fell to the ground and he collapsed, nobody had a problem with prayer. Nobody had a problem with Jesus. Dan Orlovsky was praying in Jesus' name for Jesus to heal him live on ESPN. And Marcus Spears and that, the lady's name, who's the host, her name is escaping me. They're praying along with him. Right. The entire nation is praying that God would heal this young man. And praise the Lord, he did. Okay. Here's the thing. There's, there's this... There's this myth in church leadership that you've got to hide Jesus or people are afraid of Jesus or don't call on Jesus. That's false. Mm -hmm. That's that's a lie from the enemy. Damar Hamlin was 
my message that I recommend the pastors, you don't just as Damar Hamlin collapsed and then everybody prayed and reached out to Jesus. You don't have to wait for your life to collapse. Right. You can you you, you Jesus is there for you now. Mm. And for me, the big lesson from Damar Hamlin was pastors should pastors should be very aggressive in terms of sharing their faith because people are open to it. Mm-hmm. And 2020, 2020 made them collapse. That's so good. Anyway, I got on my soapbox for a little bit there, Rusty, but there you go. Oh, I love it. I love it. That is a great word for all of us. And I have... I have noticed, you know, pre-pandemic, you had a lot of uh, looky-loos that would show up at church and they were there out of, you know, a little bit of, uh, eh, I got to put in the time or make the wife happy or hopefully God will bless the week. But uh, the people that show up now, they really want to be there. Yeah. They, they're making a concerted effort to be there, especially if they're in the building and they, they're ready. They, uh, I mean, we, we started doing a revival last year and it's... Um, I was amazed at how ready people really are. Hey, let me interrupt for just a second. If you're a church leader and your church does not have an app or your app seems to be a little bit limited, check out subsplash.com as a great resource to really give your app all the horsepower that it needs. You can connect people, you can help them get access to messages, and you can help them set up recurring giving, which is a game changer when it comes to resourcing your ministry subsplash.com. Okay, back to our episode. Can I tell you what we on the East Coast think of West Coast pastors? <laughs> y'all y'all are our heroes. Oh wow. For y'all to for y'all the opposition y'all had to face to open and reach people and minister to people and y'all did it anyway. We we look at y'all in awe. Well, I mean because it's very easy for us in the Bible Belt to meet. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a post-Christian nation, so you're always going to face opposition. But what y'all face on the West Coast, mm. we're in for guys like you. We're we're in awe of guys like you. Yeah. So thank you for everything you're doing. I appreciate that, Brian. Uh, there's yeah. some great leaders out here that we all get to learn from, which helps us tr- out tremendously. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's shift gears. Uh, I got to ask before we we move off of mighty. Did the Kansas City Chiefs make it in there as a story or analogy at all? Because you, I, I know you're a big football fan, so I am, and and they are they they are in there, <laughs> and they'll be in my next book too. I mean, so all right. So let me give you the the you know we we're going from the sublime to the ridiculous now. So we're gonna okay, good. Like, like any like any great plot, there's intensity and moments of levity and things like that. Yes. So, Rusty, you may get PTSD from the date I'm about to give you, but it was Sunday, October 24, 2021. The Tennessee Titans had just defeated the Kansas City Chiefs 27-3. to I remember. Yep. And their record at the time was 3-4, and four, and things were not going well. And Patrick Mahomes, who's the game's best player, had thrown five interceptions in the previous three games. By the way, this is in the chapter on production. Hmm. So what did Andy Reid do from a schematic perspective at that moment? And what can we as leaders learn from it? Okay. So let's, let's, let's apply this to our lives. We may have lost momentum. Sales may be down. Attendance may be down. You know, 
you, you've lost some cups. You know, there's just challenges in your organization. Mm-hmm. What did Andy Reid do that we could all learn from? Well, he did three things. If if you know Andy Reid and his career going back to the Philadelphia Eagles, he loves screen passes. It's kind of his go-to. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what he did is to regain lost momentum, he went to his go-to. Mahomes, instead of throwing deep on a regular basis, we're going to throw a lot more screen passes. Mm-hmm. So in other words, play to your strengths. If you're having poor momentum or you're going through a negative season or there's a dip in performance, remember what you do well and, 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 and get back to playing to your strengths. The second thing he did is you got to trust your teammates. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my homes get the ball quickly into the hands of Kelsey and Tyreek Hill and your other teammates. Don't try to carry the weight as a leader by yourself when things are going bad. Trust your teammates. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that this did, these screen passes, just Patrick, get it out of your hands as quickly as possible. Get it into the hands of your teammates. Okay. Mm-hmm. So trust your teammates. And the third thing is by getting it into their hands quickly, the defense didn't have time to set up and there was plenty of open space for them to operate within. Mm. What's the leadership principle there? If you're going through a dip in performance or a dip in momentum, you need to re- to identify and remove the obstacles that prevent you from being a success. You got to give your team open space. Mm. You got to get an open space. Okay. And so what happened after that, they totally changed their offense schematically, played to their strengths, trusted their teammates, got the ball into their hands as quickly as possible in open space. The Chiefs won their next eight games and made it all the way to the AFC Championship where they lost to the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, So that may be tough, but going to the AFC Championship after starting three and four is quite a feat. And then, of course, they won the Super Bowl the next year. But yes, to increase production, do those three things that I mentioned, and absolutely I would be remiss, and I would have to have my author's license revoked if I did not include your Kansas City Chiefs in my books. Well, of course, I think they should be in every book on leadership because they are just (laughs) excelling right now. And I think you could write a whole other chapter on how they they revamped their offense in the offseason and got rid of or allowed their best player to walk, uh, second best player, I should say, best receiver in Tyreek Hill, and then filled it up with spare parts and still still did even better and went on to win a Super Bowl. So yeah. there's something magical there. And I'll enjoy it as long as it lasts because I had to deal with the losing for so many years. Well, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. So you've got the Michael Jordan of football, mm-hmm. okay? So you've got Patrick Mahomes. And everything rises and falls on leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you got a great coach, you got a great owner, got a great general manager. So, you know, you've got alignment within the organization. You've got excellent leaders at each position and you've got the best player in the game. So the reality of it, and you got a leadership pipeline with all your assistant coaches Right. That you're basically populating the rest of the NFL with coaches right now. You and you and the Philadelphia Eagles. But yeah, yeah, you're 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 as long as Mahomes stays healthy, I'd say you got another 10, 12 years of 
Kansas City Chief Bliss ahead of you. Well, I hope so. And I'm just going to say this now, even though this episode isn't going to come out for a few months until after the draft, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of trades. And as of today, Aaron Rodgers just became a New York Jet, uh, which is, is its own thing. If I were Lamar Jackson, I would ask to be traded to the Washington Redskins because now you're in the NFC. You instantly become the best quarterback in the NFC, and your offensive coordinator uh, is the former offensive coordinator for Patrick Mahomes, Eric Bieniemy. Right. So I think that would make a ton of sense in my mind, but apparently he doesn't want to do that. Okay. So let let's talk about this. Okay. There's a here's a leadership principle. There's a difference between sensing opportunity and seizing it. Mm. The best quarterbacks in the NFC right now, one from your neck of the woods, the often injured Matthew Stafford, Mm -hmm. and the man they traded him for at Detroit, Jared Goff. Right. If you're in the NFC, Lamar Jackson probably puts you at minimum in the NFC championship game. Right. If I'm a general manager in the NFC, because all the great quarterbacks right now are in the AFC. Right. Okay. If I'm a general manager in the NFC, whatever it takes to get Lamar Jackson, now is the time. Right. Uh, There is a difference between – I'll give you one of these. If I'm the Dallas Cowboys, I'm trading Dak Prescott for Lamar Jackson straight up and throwing in some draft picks because you'll have to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're in the NFC, now now is your time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I, by the way, if I'm the Indianapolis Col- Colts, that number four pick is going to Baltimore. Absolutely. Well, I mean, because he's yeah. tried and true. Why would you risk that on, a, on an unknown commodity that they'll probably – They'll probably risk that on here in a couple of days. Well, here's another one. If I'm okay. the Houston Texans, the second pick is going for Lamar Jackson. Yeah, you're right. Of course, he would still be stuck in the AFC, but or yeah, but I yeah. I totally agree. Okay, movies. Movies. You're a movie buff. Yeah. You take notes during movies. You write blogs about leadership principles in movies. I recently saw this movie, and I caution our listeners, uh, the, the language is rough, but the story is incredible, uh, called Air, about the recruitment uh, of Michael Jordan to Nike back in 1984, 85, in that range. What did you glean from this movie that might be applicable to leaders? Okay, so yes, I'll do that, but I want a little 30-second aside. I think if you're going to vote on the Academy Awards, a requirement should be you should at least watch movies. How Top Gun Maverick did not win everything. It was the best movie in a long time. I remember leaving the theater going, I don't want to be a prisoner of the moment or have recency bias, but that may be the best movie I've ever seen. And that when I left the theater, I thought the same thing. I was yeah. so overwhelmed with emotion. I mean, there's nostalgia, but there's also just there's currency as well. And I just thought, that's perfect. It is the perfect sequel. And it, it checked all the boxes. It was yeah. amazing. Which, which thank you for the 30-second aside. That leads us back to air. Yes. Yeah, I, I love air. And, and you're right. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's got some language on there. I'm hoping it makes it to FX or somewhere that can take a lot of that out. But 
yeah, here's there is so much leadership, and I'm going to bring up just one topic that I remember from it. You you'll bring up another. There's the moment that Sonny Vaccaro is watching Jordan hit the championship shot as a freshman, and he comes back and he talks to Phil Knight, and he and he says, "Here's the thing." Dean Smith was putting his legacy on the line for this freshman to take the shot. James Worthy, who was going to be the first pick in the NBA draft, you know, shortly thereafter, they had him running through the lane, freeing up Jordan on the wing. Well, Vaccaro noticed that. Mm -hmm. And he says, what I see and what Dean Smith saw is greatness. I think as a leader, one of the things you should pray for is God gives you the lens to see greatness where others don't. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all building teams. We're all adding people to our staff. We're, we're, we're all on a talent search all the time. You know, uh, as parents, you know, we've got kids, you know, I, I would I would pray, Lord, whatever Dean Smith and Sonny Vaccaro saw in Michael Jordan, give me the ability to see that in other people. Yeah. Uh, if you had to make me only take one leadership principle from the movie, we can dive into a bunch more. But that, but that, that would be the thing that hit me the most watching that movie. I've seen that play a uh, hundred times, as everybody has, but never at that level. And when I realized what he was pointing out, that you had the best player in the world at that moment in college basketball was James Worthy, and he is drawing the defense away from this 18-year-old kid to take the final shot, I I got chills. I I thought, wow. Uh, First of all, not only the wherewithal of Dean Smith to to draw that play up, and Roy Williams tells the story of being in the huddle during that moment, and it's the most tense moment of anybody's life. And Dean Smith says, isn't this fun? (laughs) You know, he he decreases uh, the fear factor. Jordan's loose and ready. He says, the shots go into Jordan. And uh, to be able to to, to craft that moment and for James Worthy to believe in it, the the ability to yield to leadership there when you know you're the, the more seasoned veteran tells you something about the leader that he trusted, right. which was Coach Smith, who had not yet won a championship, and that right. was it. Yeah, and there's so much more in there. I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, to get great returns, you got to have great risk. Yep. Um, the weight of leadership is they're waiting on Jordan's decision on which company he's going to go with. And Vaccaro walks out, and he looks at the basketball division at Nike. And he knows if Jordan doesn't sign with us, they're shutting this division down. Right. The weight that you could tell he was carrying. I had a boss once tell me, we was a group of 50 people. And he goes, Brian, do you know what I think when I look out and see these people? And I'm thinking he's going to talk about, you know, how proud he is or, you know, the potential in the room or, you know, just some of these leadership platitudes we all get used to. He goes, when I look out at this group, I see 50 mortgages I have to provide for. Mm. Yeah. That plays out when Sonny Vaccaro is looking at that team. Yeah. Um, There's so much more. Jordan's inner circle, particularly his mom. David Falk plays a major role in the movie, but not more than his mom. Oh, his mom. And and I just heard the other day that 
that Jordan okayed the movie if and only if Viola Davis could play his mom. Yeah. And she's brilliant in whatever she does. But, you know, she takes a risk by asking for a percentage of the profit to go to her son, which no one had ever done. And it totally changes college sports as we know it and, and obviously uh, the, the shoe industry. But then Nike takes a risk to put two colors on the shoe, which had never been done before. And they're, they're going to have to pay a fine for it. It was just this constant series of, you know, uh, this who can take the bigger risk to get the biggest payoff. Yeah. And, you know, um, another thing that, that struck me about the movie, there's just so much in there. Nike's core values were hanging on the wall mm-hmm. and they lived by them. Mm-hmm. You know, they just they just weren't decorative. You know, they just weren't, you know, motivational sayings. Right. Those core values that hung on that wall and they point that out in the movie really drove every decision that they made. Right. And uh, yeah, it's it also, Rusty, is a reminder how thin a line is from what we now deem as normative to what it took to become normative. Oh, yes. It, it is such it is such a thin line mm-hmm. because if Jordan would have went with Adidas, which would have been the logical thing to do, there, there would be no Air Jordans. There would be no Nike commercials. There'd probably be no Tiger Woods watching the Nike golf ball on the 16th hole of the Masters drop in. It, it is amazing how what we deem as just, you know, assumptive and normative, it, it, it came that close to never, never happening to never happening. Yeah. Oh, so true. Okay. So I asked you on initially, cause I wanted to hear about your travel hacks. I read this blog you wrote. I, man, I love this blog. And you talk about little things like the right kind of carry on suitcase, uh, never drink from a glass in a hotel room. Uh, you know, just little things that I thought I'd never thought about that. Okay. So you travel a lot. Um, what are the things that you've learned along the way and maybe even some tweaks you've made post COVID? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you three and they'll all be very quick. Number one, always travel in dark pants. <laughs> well, you're gonna, you're gonna, so, something's gonna get spilled. You're you know? so right. Yeah. So don't, don't travel in khakis. Always, always travel in dark pants. Um, always take a book. Leaders or readers, you want to, ma- you don't want to wait, you don't want to waste two hours. Right. Okay. I mean, always use that as a time for personal growth. And if I had to give anyone any travel advice, this would be number one. Um, Be nice to the people at the desk at the hotels. Mm -hmm. They're tired just like you are. And they have probably had it with tired travelers. And if you go in and you are kind, and you are pleasant and you make and you smile and you make nice light conversation you got a good chance of getting an upgrade mm-hmm. so you know it's that whole thing you know everything you need to be successful in this world we learned in kindergarten uh, same thing mm-hmm. now it helps if you're like I'm a diamond member with Hilton okay it helps if you've got that little cachet 
but you know, just cause I'm a diamond member, they can still tell me no. Yep. And the reality is, yeah, you just go in, you're super nice. You're super kind. You ask how their day was and hopefully you're not doing it to be manipulative. Hopefully that is who you are. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if, if you want some upgrades and you want some perks, uh, kindness wins, be nice. Mm-hmm. That'd be the number one thing I'd recommend. I'm going to give our listeners one thing that really won't benefit them at all, but I just feel like as a follower of Jesus that this is something that would be a wonderful thing for you to do. And I learned this years ago from somebody who told me a story about how their mom used to work as a... um, uh, a cleaning woman for a hotel and she would have to go in and clean the, the hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. And he said, you have no idea how tiring it gets to strip a bed in a hotel over and over, yeah, over and over. And he said, anytime I stay in a hotel, I strip the bed for them and, you know, pile up the sheets. That way there's one less bed they have to do. I've never forgotten that. Ever since then, I've always done that. I've made our kids do that as just a way to say, listen, we may never see them. They may never see us, but it's one act of kindness that's going to bless them and give them a little bit better day. And I know some people leave tips, and that's great. But uh, especially, you know, if you go to a place to speak a lot, they figure out you're there for a church, or it's even being under a church name, they figure this out. And if you do it in the name of Jesus and serve somebody, it really goes a long way. Yeah. Along those lines, Rusty, can I tell you as an author, the number one thing I learned from writing Mighty, the, the process? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's my fourth book. And if somebody were to ask me, what's your favorite? I mean, they're all your kids. You know, you love them all, yeah. you know. But my first book, I just wanted my name on something. <laughs> yep. You know, I just I just wanted, you know, look, if you go to the Library of Congress, you and your kids and grandkids are reading my name. You know, I just wanted my I wanted to plant my flag down. You know, Uh, the second book I wrote, Timeless. I love that book. um, But I had this question in my mind. Is there a common thread between the greatest leaders, regardless of industry, you know, pastors, business people, teams, churches, Throughout all of human history, is there common threads? Well, the answer is yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so really my second book was in essence a research project. Okay. Third book, we've already talked about it earlier. That was the book I always wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my first three books, my flag, my question that needed to be answered, and and the book I wanted to write. Now, look, I'm thrilled the audiences have loved them and I'm thrilled that they've blessed people and all that. But the driver was was something I wanted. This was the first book I ever wrote for other people. Hmm. In fact, even in the title, Seven Skills You Need Mm -hmm. to Move from Pandemic to Progress. And by the way, putting the word you in there is not by accident. That was a strategic decision. Okay. But it was the first book I ever wrote for other people. And the interesting thing about it, Rusty, is on two different occasions, it was Amazon's number one new release bestseller for church leadership. Mm. I've never written a number one bestseller before. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and I'm convinced the only reason this one hit number one was not that it's got deeper insights than the other or it's, you know, has more beautiful prose than the others do or 
I honestly think the number one, the, the reason it hit number one was it wasn't about me. Yeah. It was about serving other people. And that's kind of what you just said. You know, if you know, in the story you just told about the hotel and stripping the bed, I, I think if, if you're going to be a success in this world, it happens because you're about others and you serve other people. And by lifting, you know, Zig Ziglar's got it right. If you if you give people what they want, they'll give you what you want. And yeah, and I think he nailed it. And my book would be, you know, exhibit two million four hundred and thirty six thousand that Zig was accurate, you know. But that was the number. Every book I will ever write from now on out will be for other people. Mm. That's a great word, Brian. As always. It's a, it's a pleasure. I love you. I appreciate you. I'm so grateful for you. You're one of the most encouraging people I've ever met. And I'm so grateful for you encouraging our audience today. Well, the pleasure's, the pleasure's on. When are you coming back to Georgia? Uh, I don't know. Whenever Rob invites me. So i uh, love to see you again. Well, uh, Mike Lynch, I, you, we, we were already carving out time on our schedule. Oh, I cannot wait. All right. So here's the thing. I don't know the schedule, but if for some reason the Kansas City Royals come to play the Braves. <laughs> the Braves could be so lucky. You got to come out. <laughs> we'll get Kevin Burrell and all these baseball scouts you're interviewing. <laughs> Oh, no, that would be a lot of fun. We'll roll out the red carpet. That would be a lot of fun. Well, the Braves would love to play the Royals right now. Boy, they are, uh, (laughs) they're at best a single A team. Oh, my goodness, it's bad. So, all right, brother. I'm so so grateful, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Love you, my friend. Take care. Love you too. Bye bye. Well, I always love talking to Brian. He's just such a great, great guy. One of the most encouraging people I have ever met in my life. I love his books, I love his blog. I love his insight into sports. Uh, Even if he doesn't share my affinity for the Kansas City Chiefs, he's still an all-around great guy. Next week, we'll be back with a brand new podcast with a new friend named Kevin Lloyd. And Kevin is a a pastor, and he's also a leadership coach, and he also gives us some great information about defining that weird, strange phrase called EQ, emotional quotient, or better known as emotional intelligence. What does that mean? How do you define it? How do you know if you've got it? How do you hire someone with it? He's going to walk us through all of that as well as other things as well. So join us next week on Simple Faith. Share this with a friend if it blessed you. Check out Brian's book. And as always, keep it simple.